I, I pity the person who puts all their faith and hope and trust in the election cycle of our country. My hope, my faith, and my trust are in the kingdom of heaven and in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. His future is the future we should be striving towards. His, his kingdom is the kingdom we should be serving. And because his kingdom, his word will never fail. And his promises are good and true and right. And that's where I'm going to put all of my eggs or into that basket, into God's kingdom. Um, that's the kingdom we belong to. And I, every time we sing that, that song, that last song we just sang, it just puts me in the right heart and mind of just keeping my focus where it belongs. You know, it's on, it's on Christ. It's on his righteousness. It's on his goodness. It's on his kingdom. And I hope that if your heart and if your mind have been divided this week, that I hope this morning as we sing songs together and as we turn to his word, that, that they are retuned, refocused, recalibrated back to where they belong, which is on Christ, to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto us. So uh, open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 18. We're going to continue in our study through um, 2 Corinthians, through the Corinthian letters. And uh, it just by way of review, Paul, uh, Paul has been going through somewhat of an apologetic, uh, making the case for the, the reason he does the things he does, the reason why his focus is on the things that he's focused on. And uh, recently, apparently in Corinth, his ministry had come under attack, that he had had opponents of his ministry and of the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, opponents have um, criticized him and they have attacked his position and the reason he does the things he does. And so he's in a position of defense, but you're going to notice that he's going to start turning towards more of uh, making assertions or, or offense uh, offensive statements here as he makes his case for his ministry. And uh, I just really quick, I, I need to make a defense for myself uh, because I know that I will get this question a lot. I, I do every time I wear this jersey. Uh, many Seahawk fans or old Seahawk fans, they, they say, why in the world are you wearing Russell Wilson's jersey? He's a traitor. He was traded away to the Denver Broncos. How, you know, you can't wear that jersey anymore. Well, let me just make my apologetic here. Uh, number one, Russell Wilson is a brother in Christ. Uh, I, I love the man. I, I pray for the man. He's not a perfect man. Okay? He's not Jesus Christ, but he's a brother in Christ. And, uh, and so I, I do still support him, and so that's why I wear this jersey from time to time. Uh, but number two, football speaking, he's the greatest player in Seahawks franchise history. So he's the only one who's gotten us a Super Bowl. So I'm not going to wait 20 years or until he retires to pull out my jersey and start wearing it again. I paid money for this thing. I'm going to wear it uh, on football Sunday sometimes. So anyway, just to clear the air on that issue, because I don't want to have 20 questions like I did last time I wore it. Um, so but anyway, back to Paul's defense. Here he's going to continue in this text. And why don't we say a word of prayer and we'll continue uh, halfway through verse 5 and on through verse 18 together. Lord Jesus, it's good for us to be together. It's good for us to be here in this place at this time, on this day, to lift up your name as the name above all names, to glorify 
to bless, to honor, and praise you in song, in word, and in deed, to have fellowship with the saints. I thank you, Lord, that we are here together, that those who are here, I believe that you have drawn here, that in their hearts they have a desire to be here and for a purpose, that they are an important part of building up the church. And so, Father, I just pray that this morning as we study your word, that you would speak to us. You would transform our hearts and our minds. You would cause us to be more like your son in the world. That we would truly be light bearers, not just when we're together, but when we're out in the world of darkness. That, Father, your light and your glory would shine through us as the church. And so, Father, help us to appreciate the part of the story that we're in. Help us to appreciate this responsibility that we have to be your ambassadors. And Father, may your word teach us and show us the way. In your name, Jesus. Amen. So Paul continues as he writes, Our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters of, on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So in your Christian walk, you've probably noticed that there's two divisions in the scriptures. We have what are known as the Old Testament and the New Testament, which more accurately would be considered the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. But the Bible is divided up into these two divisions primarily because the Old Testament is all about the origins of life. It's all about revealing God and his character and about his relationship with his people Israel. And through that relationship, through that redemptive history of how he chose a people, that he committed himself to love a people just like a husband would commit himself to a wife, that even though they continued to stray away, that they continued to, in essence, cheat on God with other gods and other philosophies, that God still remained committed. And throughout the Old Testament record of, of the history of Israel and God, how God would always preserve among them a remnant to which he would restore, to which he would reconcile his relationship with them. And so this is the story of, of the Old Testament, um, is God's relationship with his people. 
But as we notice, as you begin to notice, as you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that there is a, a lack of sufficiency, that there is constantly this need for the people to have this, this rigorous rule set and, and of customs in which they would follow, to sacrifice animals for their sins, to, uh, to adhere to a, a strict regimen of living as God's people. And the whole point of that was to demonstrate that ultimately, number one, we are sinners, that even though we are God's chosen people, and even though God gives us a specific set of rules to follow, and even though he demonstrates his glory and, and he reveals himself to us in miraculous ways, that despite all of that, we cannot keep his perfect righteous standard. That's ultimately the story of the Old Testament and the law. And then woven throughout the Old Testament is this promise of one who would come who would perfectly keep God's law, who would deliver God's people forever. And so as we know, as believers in Jesus Christ, we know that that person who was promised was Jesus, is Jesus. That Jesus came as the Messiah, that he fulfilled all those promises and what we could not accomplish, he accomplished on our behalf. That he lived the perfect life, he knew no sin, and that he went to the cross on our behalf he suffered the punishment that we deserve. He took the sins of mankind upon his shoulders, and God's wrath was satisfied there on the cross. And he made atonement for our sins so that all who put their faith and trust in this one true Messiah would be saved. And we no longer would have to go through a strict regimen of rules and customs, sacrificing animals in order to demonstrate our faithfulness, but rather... We simply confess with our mouth, believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord, and we are saved once and for all. So this is ultimately the story of the Old Testament, and then the New Testament tells the story of Christ. The Gospels tell the story of, of Christ's life from four different perspectives. And then you have the Acts of the Apostles, which tell the history of uh, the church, the history of the Apostles and the Acts of the Apostles as they established the church and as they went out into the world and started preaching the gospel. And then you have the different letters, like the letter we're in right now, which gives specific instructions for how churches are to uh, minister the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so here you have these two clear divisions, before Christ and then during and after Christ. Old Testament is before, New Testament is during and after and so Paul is really going to focus on this, um, this division of the Old Testament versus the New Testament because what we're going to find is that his opponents were ultimately Jews in Corinth who were trying to pull people back into the original Old Testament customs and rituals and beliefs. And so he's going to make an argument and his case why they should not. So first of all, he identifies himself as a minister of a new covenant. Um, in the first two chapters, Paul defended his, his own character, and he also presented a defense for the criticism against his performance as a minister. And now he's going to point out the fundamental flaw of their position. So he, again, he's going on the attack, he's going on the reverse, he's countering their criticism by criticizing their fundamental flaw. And ultimately, their fundamental flaw is that they have not moved on beyond the Old Testament, even though the Messiah had come, 
and even though the Messiah had freed people from the bondage of their sin and the bondage of the, of the strict regimen of rules associated with our sin. And he calls this Old Testament, he calls it a ministry of death. So his opponents he calls ministers of death. What does he mean by that? They are peddlers of the ministry of death. Again, he's referring to this ministry of the Old Testament only, which includes, again, the traditions, customs, instructions, and practices of the Old Testament. Now, it's important to preface this, because we don't want to get the wrong idea of what Paul's saying here. It's important to preface this by explaining that Paul is not saying that the Old Testament is evil or that the Old Testament in and of itself is death to people, but rather that in light of the New Testament which and Christ who has come, that ultimately the Old Testament is an outdated way or is, or is a death way compared to Christ. So in other words, compared to the New Testament, the Old Testament is dead. And he, he nowhere says that we should rid ourselves of the Old Testament. And we're going to look at that a little bit later on about that, that argument. There are people throughout church history, and there are even people today who make the claim that we don't need the Old Testament anymore. So let's just rip it out of our Bibles and be New Testament onlyists. And this is a heresy. This is a wrong belief. Uh, you will be incomplete in your understanding of Christ in general or of the church or of prophecy if we rid ourselves of the Old Testament. And so we need to be very careful um, to draw this line or to walk this line along with Paul. And just from the offset, I'll tell you, he nowhere is making the claim we should rid ourselves of the Old Testament scriptures or that there's no value in the Old Testament scriptures. That's not what he is saying. Okay, so keep that in mind as we walk through this. Um, but he does use some rather derogatory terms towards the Old Testament. Other terms he uses are it's a ministry of the letter carved in stone, ministry of death, ministry of condemnation, and ultimately it is veiled. So consider the commentary he also gives from other places in Scripture. For example, Galatians 3, 23 through 26, he says, Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So here he's talking about the law as if it's something that imprisons us or something that is, uh, holds us captive. But he also uses the term guardian. It's a guardian. It was a guardian for Israel, but ultimately it held, held us captive from the promises that God was making. And then also if you look at another one of Paul's writings in Romans chapter 7, verses 5 through 13, he says, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. 
But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produces in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So here's where he's making that clear statement. I'm not saying the Old Testament or the law is unrighteous, is unholy, is evil. In fact, I'm, I'm making the case that it's actually very holy, very righteous, and very good. But the issue that he finds is that when God, when God reveals his perfect holy character and he establishes his perfect holy standard, ultimately what that reveals in us is that we are not God and we cannot keep it, that we are indeed sinners. And that's what, that's what the old covenant does for us is that as we read that standard, it's like us looking in a mirror and recognizing our flaws because we cannot live up to that perfect holy standard. And so he continues, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So God could have ultimately made no rules whatsoever. Just total free form anarchy. Do whatever you want. If you declare it to be good, it's good. Doesn't matter. I have no standards, so therefore you shouldn't either. Just go do whatever you want. Everything you do is good and righteous and holy and just. But what did he do in the garden? He made the one rule, right? Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That was the one rule. And so what did that reveal about mankind? That we can't even keep one rule. And then when God gave Israel a certain set of rules, you start with the Ten Commandments, which Paul referenced through here. We can't keep those ten rules. We can't keep one rule. We can't keep ten rules. Well, maybe they just don't understand the rules. So why don't we just develop all these little sub-rules that, that support those ten rules? And maybe then Israel, maybe God's people, will get it. So I'm going to make like 900 some odd Levitical laws and rules that the people of Israel need to follow based off of the Ten Commandments, based off of the one law in the garden. And still, over and over again, God's people fail. Because the point of the Old Testament is to reveal the fact that God created us, that God loves us, but that we sin and we fall way short of God's glory. That's the point of the Old Testament. And once you get that point, then you understand the point of Christ, which Christ fills in that gap for us because we cannot do it on our own. And so Paul is ultimately saying that to us, the law brings death because the law reveals the fact that we're sinners. And so as we move on here, he wants to make the case that the new covenant of Christ is supreme over the old covenant because it is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant promises. And what I find here is that Paul gives us four reasons why the New Covenant of Christ is superior to the Old Covenant of the law. So, number one, under the New Covenant, we are fully fueled by God's Spirit. So, the Holy Spirit, which indwells every true believer, is life-giving and empowers us for the work of ministry. The Holy Spirit is essentially Christ in us. 
I never used to understand this as a kid when my parents said, Jesus lives in your heart. I always wondered, what does that mean? Like I used to picture my heart being like a home and Jesus walking around in his robe with coffee and just kind of, he's just living there, I guess. I can't see him, but he's there. But now I understand what my parents meant by that is that the Holy Spirit, who is God, who is sent by Jesus, who is God, who is sent by the Father, who is God, lives in my heart. And the Holy Spirit indwells within me. And the Holy Spirit is like Christ in me and Christ with me. And therefore, he is a counselor to me. He is teaching me. He is guiding me. He is nurturing me. He is empowering me to do his work while he sits at the right hand of the Father. And so under the new covenant, this is the promise of Christ that the Holy Spirit will dwell every true believer. Now, some people might make the false claim that well, does this mean that the Holy Spirit was not active in believers in the Old Covenant? That's not the case. The Holy Spirit was indeed active in specific people throughout uh, redemptive history. We see that the Holy Spirit was active throughout the prophets and, in, in fact, the, the writing of his word, that they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, recorded God's words, but also they were empowered for specific details and tasks that God commanded them in. But the Holy Spirit did not indwell every new believer or every true believer as he does today. This is a new covenant feature that the Holy Spirit indwells every true believer. And if you were an Old Testament believer, then you would have held on to the promises of God, which told of a time that would come where this would happen. If you look at Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27, the scripture says, this is Old Covenant, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And also Joel 2, 28-29, also Old Covenant, says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. And the scripture talks about the time. In fact, this scripture was quoted at Pentecost as they were trying to, trying to talk about what this event was when God's spirit came. People started speaking in tongues and miracles were happening. They recognized that this is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy that the Holy Spirit of God is being poured out onto all believers. So it's not just as a follower of God, you're not just thinking like, well, maybe God will empower me with the Holy Spirit. It's no, if, if you are born again, if you are a born again believer, then the Holy Spirit of God indwells within you. You have the Holy Spirit of God. And therefore you have access to God's counsel, to his wisdom, he will empower you by gifting you with gifts of the Holy Spirit, and he will, he will help you to contribute to his work. And so, therefore, you will be in a ministry of the new covenant. And Paul, throughout this section in Corinth, he's talking about how the Spirit is the ministry of life. How you just really have the, the life of God within you. 
how even when you're suffering difficult things, how somehow you still have joy. It's a peace that passes understanding. That, my friends, is the Holy Spirit within you. And so, in that way, the new covenant of Christ with the Holy Spirit is superior to the old covenant without. Number two, under the new covenant, we participate in greater glory, which Paul says ultimately cancels the glory of the Old Testament. What does he mean by this? Well, so in verses 7 through 11, Paul points out that there were instances of glory, of God's glory in the Old Testament, specifically referring to Moses uh, meeting with God where he received the two tablets, the two stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments. Uh, read with me with Exodus 34, 29 through 35. tells us, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them, that, uh, commanded them all that the Lord has spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And then Moses had finished speaking with them. He put a veil over his face. When Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would re remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he had commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So by Paul referencing this instance, he is clearly identifying or using the word glory to mean the revelation of God's being, nature, and presence to mankind through a physical phenomenon. And in the Old Testament, God's glory was shown to be temporary through the person of Moses. Now, don't misunderstand because many people will abuse this and will claim that, well, if you have the Holy Spirit, then your face should shine and glitter. If you go on some Pentecostal sites, they will, they will uh, try and share that we had this Holy Ghost moment where suddenly people's faces were shimmering and shining. Um, I mean, maybe it could happen. I'm not beyond that happening, but that's not the glory of the church or the glory of the New Testament, and you're, you're going to see what I mean. So New Testament glory is the revelation of the character and the presence of God, number one, in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. God's glory was demonstrated through his son, Jesus Christ. So all the miracles and the healings, walking on water, the, uh, the death and the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ, the way he, uh, he appeared, the transfiguration of, of uh, Mount Transfiguration, all these different things are God's glory demonstrated through Christ. Now I want you to know what the second thing is. Also, the glory of God is demonstrated through the people of Christ, through his church. Consider uh, Hebrews 1.3, talking about Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And so through Christ, we see God. Christ is the glory of God. We can look at Christ 
face to face and our faces don't melt off and we don't die because Christ is the glory of God. But God's, God's glory, Jesus' glory, shines through us, the church. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, so in the next chapter, Paul will talk about this. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the light of the world. And Jesus said, church, you are the light of the world. Shine your light for all men to see. And so in that way, the church, as we are living out our mandate the great commission of Christ as we are living out our sanctification in Christ, as we are coming together, praising and worshiping God, as we are uh, looking out for the widows and the orphans, as we are being the hands and feet of Christ, we are the glory of God. And it doesn't require to have shiny faces, glittery faces, but rather we are shining through living as Christ. This is the point that Paul is trying to make and this is why the new covenant is superior to the old. Because old covenant believers did not have this mandate. Their mandate was to keep and to preserve the law of God, which again demonstrates that we are sinners and that we need a Messiah. Our mandate as the church is to be the hands and the feet of God himself, the hands and the feet of Christ in this world. To not just preserve a place and a people, but to go out amongst all people and to share his light to share his gospel. And so even here as we meet together, church, as we are worshiping the Lord together, as his word is being publicly proclaimed, as we share some soup together in fellowship and we share our lives and our struggles and we pray for one another, and as we go out during the week and as we're working with unbelieving coworkers and neighbors, that we are showing them the love of Christ. Church, you are demonstrating God's glory. You have the glory of God within you. And so therefore, we don't veil ourselves, we don't limit ourselves, but rather we take full advantage of all the things that God has given us. See, Moses, he covered God's glory. But through Christ, God's glory is revealed. And why would we ever go to a place where we reveil our faces, where we deny the work of the Holy Spirit within our lives, where we deny the mandate that God has given us to be the light of the world as he, was, he is the light of the world, why would we ever go back? Because it's far greater with what he's given us. Number three, the old covenant was fulfilled through Christ. It's been filled. It, it is finished. This is what he meant on the cross when he said, it is finished. All the promises that Israel held on to, that they were looking forward, their forward-looking faith, which God called, counted as righteous. Their forward-looking faith was fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. It is finished. Much of their forward-looking faith was 
temporary. It was meant to be fulfilled. And now that it has been fulfilled, it is far greater. Because what is better, a promise or a promise fulfilled? A promise fulfilled. And so therefore, the New Testament is the Old Testament's promise fulfilled. And that's why it's far greater. Consider and be patient with me as I read through Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Because it's, the Bible just says it far better than I can. So let me, let me just read it from the scripture. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scrolls of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in the sacrifices and offerings of, of burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. And when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has preferred for all time those who are being sanctified. He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying... This is a covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And so you see here, the writer of the book of Hebrews outlines this concept exactly right. And I wanted to take this time to just look at, so does this mean that we don't follow any of the Old Testament anymore, that any of the, the Ten Commandments, the, the customs, the rules, and are we just supposed to throw the baby out with the bathwater and, well, let's just use it as a historical reference just to prove, just to prove the New Testament? No, there, there is still some valuable things in here. And the best way I can explain this is by demonstrating the three types of laws that existed in the Old Covenant. First of all, the ceremonial laws. These were the ceremonial Levitical rules and regulations Israel was exclusively responsible to keep until the Messiah. And these would have included things such as uh, sacrificial ceremonies, feasts and festivals, dietary and clothing restrictions, signs pointing to the coming Messiah, the Sabbath, circumcision, Passover, redemption of the firstborn, things like that. So when Christ came, and, and he, and he uh, specifically said, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, what he meant is I came to fulfill the ceremonial laws which, which Israel was required to do to demonstrate righteousness. 
So all those things that I listed, the sacrificial ceremonies, the feasts and the festivals, specific dietary and clothing restrictions. And, you know, I kind of think about the fact that I'm wearing a, a football jersey this morning. Uh, if, if those have not been fulfilled through Christ, then I would still be wearing an ephod and things like that. I'd be the traditional priest outfit. And I'm kind of thankful I'm not, that I can wake up Sunday morning, look through my closet and think what I'm going to wear today. And uh, I have freedom uh, to wear things within modesty, of course. But that was all fulfilled through Christ. Observing the different feasts throughout the years, those were fulfilled through Christ. Obviously, we don't bring animals to sacrifice here. Those were fulfilled through Christ. Uh, the Sabbath, a lot of people debate about the Sabbath. Ultimately, Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath. We find our fullness of rest within him. He has fulfilled the rules of the Sabbath. So we are still observing and honoring the Sabbath when we come to worship and find our rest in him. It doesn't matter what day of the week that we do it. What matters is that we do it. And obviously, Sunday, there's a lot of reasons why the church throughout history has chosen Sunday as the Lord's Day. If you worship on Saturday, if, if you're a Seventh-day Adventist, more power to you. doesn't really matter what day because the Lord of the Sabbath is here and we find our rest in him. He has fulfilled this. The Passover, we don't do the Passover anymore because the blood of Christ covers the doorposts of our hearts. We no longer need to, to honor and observe that event. It's good to remember these things, but they're not required of us. And that's the point, is that the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Christ. But then there's also, here's the second type of law, the moral laws. Should we just throw out all of the all of the do's and don'ts of the Old Testament? Should we throw out the entire Ten Commandments? No, this was never the intention. Because ultimately, the moral laws are, are, are a reflection of God's perfect and righteous character. And this is the standard in which he sets for his people to live by. Of course, we know from the Old Testament, we can't perfectly live up to this standard. However, with God's help, we can certainly improve. And as the church, we will and we must improve. The Holy Spirit that's within you will see to it. This process is called sanctification. This is why John, he writes that if you continue in your sin, if you persist in your sin, if you are unrepentant in your sin, then how can you say that the Holy Spirit is in you? How can you say that you are truly a child of God? Because children of God with the Holy Spirit within us will live righteously. There's no question about it. And that's why when we examine the fruit of our lives, if we see just a continuing down spiral constantly without repentance, without any kind of a bump, whatever, we're just constantly living in sin, then, then how can we say such a person has been born again by Christ? But rather, we understand that even in our sinful state, that if we're born again, we will constantly be growing in righteousness according to God's moral laws. And as the scripture says, these laws will be written on our hearts. There will be conviction there that, that maybe you weren't aware of. Maybe you don't know the Bible, you haven't read the whole Bible, but suddenly you will have conviction for your addictions. 
conviction for your bad habits, convictions about the way that you treat other people, and you'll wonder, why do I feel this way suddenly? It's because God's law has been written on your heart, and that is the supremacy of the new covenant, is that God's law is written on our heart, and God intercedes and intervenes in that process of growing us. So the moral laws remain. In fact, many of the moral laws are repeated in the New Testament by Christ himself and by his disciples. So therefore, what was written as a moral code in the Old Testament and what is repeated in the New Testament are moral laws that we still observe. And then you look at the third type, which is judicial laws. And these are the laws of Israel which govern them specifically as a theocratic state. Um, and that's reserved for Israel alone. But we do adhere to the laws of the kingdom of God. That we are expected as a people, when we come together in church fellowship, to live according to some kind of corporate or social order. That it's not just a free-for-all. And that this ultimately plays into the, the bigger picture, which is the, the, univer, the, the church, the global church. That as a church, we exist globally. You can go to many different places and find true believers. And where true believers are, there is the church. The church is not divided by national borders. It's not divided by walls of a building. It's not divided by uh, codes, land codes. It's ultimately the church is wherever believers gather. So we should be looking for believers everywhere we go. And as we get together for the purpose of worshiping God and doing his work, there should be some kind of level of judicial order. And that's why here at Clayton Community Church, as we talked earlier about uh, electing or appointing elders, we have a process for that. As we uh, get together as elders and we discuss the business of the church, and we look at the different vetting processes of membership, things like that. We keep order, we keep structure, and this is all part of God's plan for the church. We don't do it as a theocracy. We're not looking to, uh, to convert every nation into a, um, um, a, a nation of, of Christians, but we are looking to convert individuals as believers. And then by doing so, perhaps more and more people will believe. But we're not looking to establish a kingdom here on earth. We're looking to establish God's kingdom. And so with all those things to consider, the old covenant was fulfilled through Christ especially when we consider the ceremonial laws. But we uphold the moral laws, and we are actively uh, carrying out the judicial laws. Last one, number four. <clears throat> Under the new covenant, we have freedom through the Spirit. Anybody here like freedom? We talk about it all the time. Liberty, freedom, the right to be left alone, right? That's, that's uh, as Americans, we love that. But true freedom is not given by governments or governors or legislation or human documents. True freedom comes from the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is in you. You are truly free. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. If you know the truth of Jesus Christ, who is the truth, you are free. Even if you live in the most authoritarian state, you are still the most free in this earth. Nobody can take that freedom away from you. So don't panic, don't fret, don't despair when our governing authorities start to put on restricting authoritarian laws and rules. You are still 
free. It doesn't mean that you, you can't push back against these authoritarian rules, especially as you see them oppressing your neighbors, especially as you see injustice on the rise. We are still called to be a part of society and to look out for our neighbors and our friends and to push back against authoritarian uh, control. But as far as your mind goes, consider that Christ has overcome the world and you are truly free. And when you die, you'll be in heaven with him. There's nothing anybody or any law can take away from you in regards to that. But consider Paul here, the section of Corinthians says, The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We are free from the bondage of sin. We are free from the burden of ceremonial laws. And we are free from being restricted by borders. You are truly free in him. And so this comes back to the question then, what should we do with the Old Testament? What, what should our view and our approach be of the Old Testament? Should we just start reading only New Testament? Should we just kind of be thankful for the Old Testament, not really look into it or, or use the Old Testament to, to build our theology about God? Because this was a danger. There was a second century uh, person named Marcion of Sinope. And Marcion developed this, this idea that the, the Testaments contained two different gods. That the Old Testament God was some sort of a, a demiurge who was kind of cruel and, and mean and judgmental. And, uh, and then along comes this other God, Jesus, who comes and basically corrects the wrongs of this demiurge. And so, therefore, Marcion of Sinope, who, by the way, was a huge Paul fanboy, uh, reading things like this, he somehow got his own idea that we just need to rid ourselves of the Old Testament. And so he was early and often um, called to be a, a heretic for those beliefs because it's just not consistent with Scripture. It's just not what Paul was teaching. If you look at the Romans passage we quoted earlier, clearly he's not discrediting the Old Testament. He's not claiming anywhere that the Old Testament God is different from the New. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But rather, the covenants are different. The Old Covenant is different than, than the New Covenant, and the New Covenant is superior to the old, but it's the same God. So don't be tempted to follow along like Marcion did and to try and rid ourselves of the Old Testament. Uh, Andy Stanley, a pastor of one of the largest churches in America, recently was in hot water because he said that the church needs to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Now, I'd like to sit down with him and ask him, what exactly did you mean by that? But a lot of people got some very uh, Marcion vibes from that statement and immediately pounced on top of that and um, refuted that. And so, no, we should not unhitch ourselves from the New Testament, but we certainly should not reveil ourselves by following the Old Testament customs which Christ had fulfilled. So Jesus confirms the Old Testament's importance. Again, he says, don't think I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have, come, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So we should keep the Old Covenant. Did you know that 25% of the New Testament includes Old Testament quotes and references? So a lot of the New Testament involves Old Testament quotations, which means 
If you read a quotation in the New Testament, do you truly understand the full context of that quote? Well, without the Old Testament, how could you? How could you understand the full context of redemptive history without the Old Testament? How could you really understand the value and importance of Christ without the Old Testament? Because in the Old Testament, there was the absence of Christ, at least on a ministry level. But Christ came as a Messiah in the New Testament, and we understand the fullness of the story. So our full understanding of God, of history, demands the Old Testament. The creation account, sin and the fall, Israel's history, fulfilled and unfilled prophecy, are all in the Old Testament. And so what I want to encourage you with is just understand the part of the story that you're in. Understand that God is not calling us to revert back to old customs and laws, but rather to celebrate the fact that we are free in Jesus Christ. We are free because his spirit is within us. We are not free to go on sinning unrepentantly. May it never be so. But we are free to live for him and follow him and to go to the ends of the earth to live in the freedom of Christ in his ministry and to share his gospel, to be the light, to show the glory of God to a world who is lost and dying. And so church, I want to encourage you to be a part of the new covenant of grace, to know the part of the story that we're in and to live it out perfectly every day the best that we can with his help. Let's pray. Father, how good and gracious and kind and awesome you are, God, as we look back and think about your story, the history of the world, the history of how you have loved us and how you have redeemed us through your son Jesus and how you have made us a part of your program. We thank you, God, for including us and for equipping us and empowering us to do your work. So I pray here at Clayton Community Church, Lord, that you would you would just help us to understand where we are in your history, and you would help us to understand what we have access to, and that as believers, that we would all live out the mandate you have given us, that we would rely on you and yield to you as you do your work within us, and that, God, you would help us to reach out to a lost and dying world to share your glory and your light. Father, open up their eyes to see. God, help them to discover the treasure that is you. Help them to cherish you, to love you as we do. And Father, we do pray for more and more to, to come to know you and to be saved. And we do pray that practically that as people come to believe in you, we will see our, our state and our country improve. God, may you use us to change hearts and minds. May we not be so focused on, on politics, but may we be focused on hearts and minds. May we help people to come to know you, and through that, may they be saved and live better lives. God, it's our hope just to please you, and so help us to live by faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.